Canyoneering is a dangerous sport and should not be attempted by anyone. The hosts of this podcast and its guests do stupid things outdoors and frequently give bad advice and incorrect information. Listening to this podcast is known to cause cancer in the state of California. To reduce the threat of harm, listeners should wear a mask, earplugs, and stay indoors. And now, the unqualified hosts of the Canyon Tech Podcast, Wayne and Vin. Hey, everybody. It's glad to have you back. Vin, I have very exciting news from our first two podcasts. We have a listener. We're, world, we're worldwide now. We have a listener in Slovakia. Well, hello. Yeah, I'm actually older than the country of Slovakia. <laughs> so that's how exciting, exciting this is. Well, Wayne, I thought it'd be interesting to start off maybe having you talk a little about about your experience on SAR and like what you've learned from it. Sure. Um, I've been doing ground and high angle for about three years now, I guess. Actually, nobody cares. Let's talk about Canyon. You're, you're right, Vian. You're right. So we've now have gone through some of the most basic equipment that you need for rappelling on the previous couple of podcasts. And so let's talk a little bit more about advanced equipment. So advanced equipment you're going to use for things like self-rescue. So your uh, shirt or your hair may get caught in your descender on the way down. Um, your first choice is to try to get yourself out of the mess before you have to worry the people um, at the top or the bottom for try to help you out. Um, ascending, so you stick a rope somewhere uh, and you got to go up to the top, uh, hopefully safely, in order to be able to uh, get it back, retrieve it and reset and then also partner rescue. So someone is stuck, as I said before, and they don't know how to self-rescue. So there's different ways to get them off of their descender, maybe raise them all the way back up or lower them down, depending on how you've got uh, things set up and what you think is, is easiest. So that's kind of the basis for what we're going to talk about today. So I want to revisit one of the first things is the uh, sewn slings. So we talked about this as one of the basic, uh, but there's other uses for it as well. So I guess the first thing, let's refresh everybody on the self-rescue, Vin. How would we use our sling? Um, so definitely a bunch of different ways to do it. I carry a sling, a double-length sling with me. And so my preferred method, um, which I'm comfortable with, is for like a stuck device, I would tie a climb heist above with my double-length sling, step up into it, Perhaps short clip if I needed to, but in general, that's enough time for me to solve whatever problem it is. You know, as somebody with long hair, uh, I wear a lot of loose clothing. Usually that's enough to get me out of the situation. And when you say double length, we're really talking about kind of minimum a three foot sling, but maybe four or even five, five feet in order to be able to do all that. Yeah. So, so um, that's great. And so the sling is one of those things where maybe when you're first going out the time or two, you're not going to need it. But afterwards, then you will. So after you do your climb heist, obviously, it becomes a, the, the rest of that sling becomes a foot loop. Um, we talked before about being able to use it as a chest harness. If you've got a big uh, rappel that has um, it's all over overhung and so you're free hanging, sometimes you'll get top heavy. So you can always uh, hang your bag from your harness. But sometimes having the chest harness to clip in keeps you more upright. So it's versatile for that. Um, let's talk for a second about um, they do sell dedicated foot loops. And uh, maybe some of the pluses and minuses of that, Vin. Yeah, you know, I think that when we're talking about the equipment, um, there's that compromise between stuff that you're going to bring all the time and then stuff if you know that you're going to be doing something. And the foot loop kind of falls into that category for me. 
if I was ascending, would I rather have a foot loop? Yeah, I probably would. But would I want to carry it around all the time um, in canyons where there's no mandatory ascents? Not necessarily. Uh, it is better because it's fully adjustable and it's more comfortable and it like stays snugly on my foot. But in terms of actual advantages over the sling, not something I carry around every day. Yeah, I agree. And I have one for the same reasons. I thought it would be great and it does work well. But um, for the most part, the sling is just much more versatile. And the last thing that I'd say you can do with your sling is when your uh, newbie friend shows up and they have their climbing harness and maybe a, a one carabiner and descender, um, but they do not have that, that tether, uh, the personal anchor system, then you can give them a tether, make them a tether out of that sling as we've talked about before. So that's always helpful. Um, so let's move on to the Prusik. So there's many different types and a couple of different uses that we tend to do within canyoneering. So one is um, obviously as a backup. When you go down first uh, repelling uh, in your group, you will not have a fireman's belay below. So you're much more at risk if you happen to take your hand off of the rope. Um, uh, and so there's a couple of different ways as a backup to, to stop you automatically. So the one um, is to put that uh, pressic above your device and then it will, you, you will slide it down with you as you go. And if something goes wrong, hopefully you will let go of it and it'll automatically grab for you. Um, the other way is uh, a, more of a climber's type of auto block. Uh, they often call it a third hand, which is down below your descender and being able to use it that way. The, the, the advantage of having the auto block is it doesn't take quite as much um, strength for it to grab because it's going through all the friction in your descender first. Um, but there's a big downside to using an auto block in canyoneering. Vin, talk to us about that. Uh, the downside is that you're when you're when you're descending in the canyons, you're using devices that are slightly different than than the climbers. And in general, the canyoneering devices have a lot more adjustability for friction on the fly. But all of that friction usually involves taking some length of rope and doing something to the device to add more friction. Uh, with the third hand below, it becomes much more difficult uh, because that device is right there. You're trying to grab this length of rope and you're having to try and find it somewhere between the third hand that you've installed and the device itself. Yeah, and also I would say as you're repelling, then you're, you still have your brake hand, uh, we'll call it on the right side, and then your left hand has to come over and mind that auto block before your, your device. And so um, to me, that's not ideal because then a lot of times as you're going down, you want a hand out onto the wall. And so now you've dedicated both of your hands to the repel, um, which is not necessarily ideal. There's a lot of times you need to, you know, balance yourself in other different ways. Um, so we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the most popular way of having the backup, the safety above your descender, and that is the valdotane tress, uh, commonly referred to as a VT. So the most common way of tying that is in a French braid. You wrap uh, anywhere from two to four, usually three wraps, uh, nice and tightly, and then you bring the top down and you just kind of braid them by alternating which one gets pinced against your main rope, and then you clip it into um, your, your harness in a primary spot. So the idea being, uh, and then it's easy to mind, it's easy to, um, once it's weighted, it should grab. And then even under pressure, um, once you're back on rappel and have recovered from whatever happened to make it grab, then it's easy to release. Um, so the VT, and especially is wrapped as a French braid, 
um, is really quite uh, common and, and one of the most uh, preferred ways to do it for all the reasons that I listed. But the VT is also um, versatile in other ways of, of, do, of wrapping. You want to give us a few thoughts on different ways to wrap that, Vin? Yeah. And before I get to that, too, I, I would say that, like, I think the VT Prusik was a development in the canyoneering community that kind of changed some things. Uh, so if you look at, like, there is kind of a negative connotation with putting the um, backup above the rappel device. Like, even, like, I think, like, you're looking at, like, 2002, Petzl is still recommending uh, that you're putting device below. And some of that has to do with, like, stuff like the VT Prusik just didn't exist. And so, like, when you run into a problem and you've loaded this device, uh, when it's below, since it hasn't taken all of the weight, it's a lot easier to release. With the development of like the VT Prosec, being able to release that under load wasn't something that was available to climbers before. Uh, so like that type of stuff is, I think, why you kind of still see that even now, like AMGA climbers still are teaching their clients to go below. Um, but in terms of like, you know, you and I have tried every single hitch out there. Um, do they act different? They do. Uh, but I kind of find that, like, when you're using the knots, um, you're kind of, like, adding wraps, right? And the number of wraps will affect the amount of friction. And then after that, it's kind of, for me, about adjusting the length to the connection point that I want. So, like, with the Blake's hitch, it acts very similar to, like, a, like a VT Prusik. But having that without having the French braid at the bottom gives me that extra couple of inches, which might be convenient for me to connect to my uh, harness. Yeah, and the other aspects of the the VT is we're talking about with the French braid and some of the other distal and other types of hitches that you could tie. Um, that it's meant to be loaded in one direction, right? Um, but they're also for purposes of rescue and um, and other things that you may be doing. You can actually uh, re- you still use a VT a little more as a loop pressic, um, which we'll talk about in a second. But you could just do a, a symmetrical wrap, right? So you're just looping it around, say three times. You have three in the top, three at the bottom. So you could actually pull in either direction with the symmetrical. Um, but you could also do it as an asymmetrical. So again, maybe for more for rescue as opposed to a, a, an auto backup. Then you could do a, a five over one or maybe a four over two um, where you have more uh, wraps in one direction than the other. So it allows it to have uh, much more grab. And I, and I guess having used this the other day and in trying to set up a three to one, you also have to be careful that it grabs so well. I did it as a five over one that it doesn't, doesn't release um, so, so great. Um, the other thing let's talk about is the seven millimeter versus eight millimeter debate. And you can also get a VT as say a six millimeter as well. Um, so what's the general rule of thumb Vin, and the size of your VT um, versus the rope and uh, maybe some of the positives and the, the negatives on the six to eight millimeters? Yeah, I, I think that um, the ability for the Prusik to grab onto the rappel rope is all kind of calculated off of the delta between the size of the rope and the size of the Prusik that you're installing onto it. So like, let's just say you're, using, you're going down on a 10 mil rope and you're using an eight mil Prusik going to grab great like that one to two difference is is pretty good uh you start putting a six mil on that and like you could like weld yourself to that rappel line and so i think it is kind of important to have an understanding of like what your group is using what ropes you are and how the prusik that you choose acts on the rope that you decide to rappel on 
Yeah, and it's really, are you going to release it under load or not as well, right? So if it's still going to be under load as you're gently releasing it, maybe you've passed a knot and you're trying to let yourself the slack out of the system, um, then then that's one thing versus, as you said, if if it is too much of a, of a difference, a six millimeter Prusik, um, I know I had one of those for a bit and, and uh, you borrowed it from me and got promptly got stuck on the way down because you waited it and you could not get back off of it, would not release. And so you do have to watch that delta. Usually the one to two millimeters is, is kind of the rule of thumb. Um, I think you and I both use the seven millimeter. Um, also, part of the reason is with that, with that delta, even if it's on a nine or nine and a half millimeter rope, to me that seven works just because it gets dirty. I'm not going to wash it every time. And so there's going to be a little more, more slipperiness just from the dirt alone. Um, and so I want to make sure that I've got a, a sizable. So I've used eight before. And once that gets dirty, it, it barely grabs anything um, in my experience. So that's a little bit tougher. Um, the other type of Pressic, uh, going past the VT, is the loop Pressic, right? So you can either have buy them as a sewn or you can uh, make a homemade. So homemade would be take some, some nice um, softer cordage and uh, do a double fisherman's and uh, make a loop out of that. And so you're able to just wrap it around, again, usually about three times. It's a symmetrical wrap that can be loaded in either direction. Um, again, not tends to not be used for a backup on rappel as much as it is to uh, use it as a rope grab for rescue or other kinds of activities. Um, and so I've got a loop pressic. Um, I'm sure you do too in your pack, um, but we don't tend to, to go to it too much. Um, I know that if you get, again, into a six or a seven millimeter loop pressic, they tend to bind pretty well. So I've tried to ascend on those before just in practice. And after you've waited it, it's really tough to get those to move. Um, you have to break the bar to try to get it going. So um, just not as easy as, as some of the other, definitely not as easy as the VT and, um, and some of the other wraps that you might, might have. Anything else that you can think of, Vin, relative to kind of your, your pressics above the device? Um, no, the only thing that I would say that it is a little bit different for me since I spend most of my time on an extended rappel. Um, so it does kind of change some of the logistics. I, I do have an easier time having it below, um, and doing like an auto block is certainly faster, but it is 100% a worse repelling experience. Uh, the only thing I would say too, about the, this, you know, homemade Prusik is just so much cheaper, right? right? Like I think the VT Prusiks are like $27 nowadays, yeah. which is a couple of, couple of feet of, uh, accessory cord. Yeah, very true. And there's also, um, talking about expense, there's a very special type called a hollow block that's, um, uh, you know, doesn't have quite the core that some of these others do. And so it feels very soft, as the name would indicate. Um, and it is specifically made to be used as a third hand. So if you're going to do a hollow block, don't confuse that with uh, kind of your typical pressic and use it in any other way. I've seen people do it. Um, it's just, I don't think has the strength to, 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 to be able to use it like a VT or a symmetrical prussic. So it's really made to have that lesser tension, um, underneath and it's, it's smaller so that you don't, you know, the main thing with that auto block as the third hand is, uh, it's gotta be short enough that it's not stretching into your device, which would be, um, quite the experience. So that's some of the things that you have to take into consideration. Okay. So we'll move on from the, the prussics and being able to, to release, especially release under load and go into mechanical ascenders 
and uh, and we'll call them rope grabs, right? So the difference um, for these mechanical ascenders is usually they're made to not release under load. Um, so in places that you need that to happen, um, say on a rescue, you're going to want to strongly consider where you're putting them because if you're if you're trying to raise someone all the way to the top, for example, um, and you put these uh, these grabs on and you put a, a progress capture pulley in the wrong place, you may not be able to reset uh, very well. Or if it's going to stay under load, you won't be able to take it off at all, um, where again, a VT could be released. So you have to strongly consider. But the, the use of these is that they work very, very well in the way that they do it. So the, the downside of having a VT or any kind of prusik is it will hold because it's a friction hitch, right? So it'll hold until it slips. And when it slips, it's not likely to um, catch again. And so it just, when it fails, it fails catastrophically. Most of the time with the um, mechanical ascenders, uh, once they've grabbed, they will hold uh, very, very well. And you don't have to worry about them in the least slipping. The downside to those mechanical ascenders um, is that you don't want to shock load them at all because they have teeth. And so um, some of them will have spiky little teeth, and we'll talk about brands in a second, and some will have ridges on a little cam. So most of these are made in such a way it's a spring-loaded cam, so you can shove it up the rope, no problem, but when it starts to get pulled in the other direction, then the little teeth are going to grab or the ridges are going to grab. And, uh, and, and so then when you're ascending with these kinds of devices, um, you know, that's great because you're not shock loading them, you're setting them, you're, you're stepping into them, you're lifting yourself up, but you're not um, um, worried about, you know, taking a fall on them for the most part. Um, so let's talk, tell me a little bit about, you know, there's a difference between the mechanical um, rope grabs, we'll call them, so things like the tie block and the rope man and the progress capture pulley. So tell me a little bit about the difference between those and maybe why I'd want one versus another or maybe one of each. Yeah, so, you know, and also the category of, like, how serious is this rope grab? Um, like, I'm very comfortable bringing a tib lock with me as part of my regular daily gear, but it weighs a couple of ounces versus would a Jumar be better for me if I was ascending? Yeah, it, it would, um, but it's just so heavy that it's not necessarily... Uh, something that I want to have uh, in terms of like the mechanical grabs versus the mechanical pulleys for, for me, it's kind of what the, the usage is. And like for specifically one example I can think of is when you're ascending um, like 100%, I can ascend with two mechanical grabs um, traveling in a straight line, but that causes me the additional disadvantage that I have to weight the rope. Right. So with the, being able to put the mechanical grab pulley on the bottom, pulling up on the rope allows me to be the last person up without having to attach something to the rope. Yeah, so those, those um, uh, progress capture pulleys are great in the sense that you can pull, especially for um, doing rescues, but as you're describing for um, ascending, I would put something like a rope man or a tie block up top and maybe have a, a spock or a micro traction or a nano traction or a roll and lock um, on my on my harness and so then as I step up on the top one I can just pull and the um, the pulley system makes it very um, nice and smooth to do so and then sit back down on that second one so I think you and I both do carry one of each on the mechanical side and, and maybe in some cases a, a couple of each um, to be able to do ascending and uh, rescue work where, where needed. 
Yeah, the other thing I would say too is it's kind of a function of uh, efficiency, right? Like we're always trying to strive to be more efficient in canyons because it costs us time, it costs us temperature, it costs us energy. Uh, and so in the case of like ascending, like part of the reason that I veer towards using mechanical grabs is because of the stretch that comes from using rope prosthetics. And so like, let's just say I press push up a VT and then I reload it. Like that could be a four inch stretch that I lost and I only took a two foot step. And so the same thing kind of applies to using, like, for example, like I think last week I was using two rope mans, one on top and one on bottom. And to solve the problem of not needing to weight the rope, I just redirected the bottom up to my upper ascender and then back down. So now I'm pulling in the downward direction, which is what I want. However, it was kind of funny just seeing the rope man flip over before it would engage cost me like an inch and a half. And I'm only like it. It makes a difference because I was doing something like 100 foot ascent. Mm. Uh, it, it all adds up. Yeah, very true. And the other the other thing that we found over time that's nice on those progress capture pulleys, as I, as I mentioned, they're not made to be same as the rope man. Uh, and the tie block, they're not made to be released under load. So if you're sitting on them, you can't slide it uh, like a Prusik, as we've described. But there is a little trick to releasing them because most of them have that little cam where you can get your thumb in there, right? So if you can pull the system up slightly in the right direction, um, you can pull that cam open. I know with Sp- with the Spock, you can actually, um, there's a little cable there that you can lock it open, which has its advantages and disadvantages if it accidentally does that. Um, but it is a little trick for releasing all those under load. Um, so if we move on to just the other piece of equipment that's in the advanced category, it's pulleys. So we talked about a progress capture pulley, which is great because it's a pulley and the ability with a cam to ca- capture any progress that you've made all in one. But a pulley, we're just talking about a simple can roll in either direction type of pulley. So primarily, um, I carry a couple of these to be used in rescue. So you're going to build a three to one, uh, maybe a five to one or a nine to one, uh, typically um, could also be helpful uh, for the pothole escapes, same as the progress capture pulley. So for example, if you're in a pothole and I'm already out, um, but you're having trouble um, either ascending or we don't want to just take the time, I can throw you down a loop of the rope, have you put it into a pulley or into a progress capture pulley like a Spock. And then now I have a two to one where I can just pull you up um, or assist you in a much better way. So it's a way for moving um, uh, people and weight and a little more. And again, you could you can build a three to one on top of that and, and do some multiples there as well. But there are two main types. So there's kind of your basic pulley and then there's a Prusik minding pulley with the flared side. So Vin, tell me a little bit about that type of pulley. Yeah, so, you know, there's kind of two main uses for for the pulleys, right? One is to build mechanical advantage. And for me, the other one is usually to like redirect a force. Now, when we're building mechanical advantage, a lot of times we're trying to capture that progress so that you can take breaks in between. And a simple way to do that is to add a prosthetic very similar to what you would do like as a, as a backup for your rappel. Um, but the problem is, is that if you're building like a rope prosthetic, like let's just say a three wrap prosthetic uh, and you're just using a regular round pulley, you can actually get sucked into it. So the prosthetic minding pulleys have this flare out on the edges uh, that will keep the prosthetic from binding into the device and will allow it to kind of sit there and just capture the progress when you're pulling on the rope. Yeah. And, and so that's great. Just having the pulley to begin with um, in the system, as you talked about for efficiency. So I've seen numbers where if you're just running it through an around a rounded beaner, um, it's really about a 50% efficiency where pulleys 
um, tend to be in the 70, 80, 90, depending on how expensive it's got little ball bearings in it and those kinds of things. And so when you're trying to create mechanical advantage, obviously, if you're, if you're running it through a couple of carabiners as part of your system, um, without any pulley at all, you're going to lose a fair amount of that advantage. Um, and so when we're pulling up somebody who's, you know, hundred pounds, we may not worry quite as much, but the opposite may be true since we're both over 200. If we have the hundred pound person that we go out with is trying to pull us up for any reason, you're going to want to have maximum, uh, efficiency within that system as much as possible. Um, and the other thing that I've seen is double pulleys. Um, and so my, my opinion on the double pulleys, you know, you would use it if you're trying to create a five to one, um, generally it's overkill for canyoneering. There's other ways to create more mechanical advantage than just kind of looping back a couple of times. Double, uh, pulleys aren't made, um, or meant to be some of them to, um, just wrap them once. So you don't really want to have a double pulley because just is the just in case pulley. Um, and then only have it on one side cause it gets a little bit skewed and it may not be made for that. And so, um, you know, that's, that's a little bit much. Um, the other thing that we use pulleys for is on uh, guided repel. So this is when you're trying to get over a pothole or some other kind of hazard, right? So you set up the system in a very specific way and the person repelling will clip in their tether onto a, um, one side of the line that's tensioned. Um, which will stay above them and keep them out of whatever the um, the hazard is below. And uh, when it's a high angle, um, it's, you know, just clipping in with a, a, a beaner is enough to kind of keep you there. But for lower angle ones um, and traversing that way, uh, using a pulley has been much easier, I've seen, in order to be able to just clip into that and uh, then then move yourself um, along along the way. Uh, then anything else about anything we've talked about so far in the advanced equipment or anything else that you can think of? Yeah, yeah. just going to that, uh, that guided repel example, I think, you know, that's one of the things that we learned over time and like my making mistakes. I think we just never realized how much slack we're introducing, regardless of how tight we do it. And mm-hmm. so you're always kind of at like this bottom of this like curve and trying to get back up to like dry land or whatever obstacle we were trying to, uh, you know, get over. And so I think it was you that figured out, oh, wow, this is a lot easier with a pulley and I can pull myself over the rest of the obstacles. Yeah. It's um, just the little things like that can really make a difference when you're trying to, trying to escape. Okay. So let's uh, pause for a minute, take a break and we'll be right back. Today's podcast is brought to you by Octagon Canyon Guides. Do you have too much money and want to experience world-class canyons like Yankee Doodle and Boltergeist? Do you want to experience rappelling by being lowered on top belay like a sack of buckwheat flour? Then come see the semi-professionals at Octagon Canyon Guides. Our guides have weeks of experience and the knowledge to rig everything with a simple figure eight knot. Don't be fooled by those expensive guide companies that rig releasable. That's what search and rescue is for. Octagon Guides. Remember, eight is enough. What do you think of that, Vin? That sounds great. I want one of those. Ah, so much emotion from you, Vin. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right, so let's talk uh, about safety equipment. So I know we've talked on the previous podcasts on uh, just the basics. You got to have a harness and descender in good shape. You want to have a personal anchor system or tether. Um, <clears throat> obviously, you need a helmet gloves. If it's hot out, you got sunscreen and water. Um, So let's talk about a few other things that um, deserve consideration. So 
The first is approach shoes. Ben, you want to talk a little bit about why that makes a difference as opposed to just say hiking shoes or tennis shoes that you find super comfortable? Yeah, I mean, I think a great example is like my first uh, overnight canyon was with you guys in Death Valley. And I had a, like a brand new pair of maybe $150 Hoka's and they lasted all of one day. Like didn't yeah. even get me through the trip, lasted one day and the soles fell apart. And so like when you look at the approaches that are coming out, um, both with how sticky they are, how they react in water uh, and that like edge guard that allows you to like kind of smear into the rock. Um, it, it's a it's a huge difference and a huge energy saver. Yeah. And the key is to look for that uh, rubber, the rubber sole, right? So the stealth rubber, the rubber, the Vibran rubber soles will make all the difference in a lot of the top brands, uh, both domestically and from Europe will have that in there. And so, you know, the five tens, the Las Sportivas, et cetera. And so when you're getting those approach shoes, also the other thing is with water, there's a few styles that we've gone through when they get wet, they tend to shrink and other ones don't shrink at all. So some of it is just have to find shoes that fit you well. Some are wider, some are narrower, and um, some are better in, in water or not. But the rubber is the key. You just said, if you get to limestone, um, those types of things. I've also found that on sandstone, even if it doesn't wear down your normal soles, I've slipped plenty um, without that rubber. So I'm always happy, happy to have the um, specific approach shoes. So when we're also, let's jump to taking ropes out. So we're talking about safety here. And the general rule of thumb then is to take uh, two to three times the length of the longest rappel for your rope. So talk to us about that logic. Yeah, you know, this kind of stuff that's going to wind up happening is um, you want the extra rope, right? Like if you only took enough rope to get down the longest rappel, you have not compensated at all for the fact that you might stick one of them. Or for some reason, the anchor has changed or the terrain has changed and now you're short on one of them. Or one of your friends let you borrow a six mil and got stuck and somebody else has to mm. throw you another rope to switch to or start to think about rescuing you. Yeah, and, and so if you do stick that rope, you don't want to be stuck in the canyon, right? So you at least have to have one in reserve. A lot of times the three times the length is because, uh, you know, if you have a long rappel, you're going to use the other um, uh, rope to get it back in terms of having it as a, as a pull cord. Um, but we mitigate that. So a lot of times we actually will use maybe two times the length of the longest rappel and maybe a third rope of a smaller size if there's a lot of smaller rappels. But the other thing that we have in reserve is either a, a fiddle or a smooth operator with some Dyneema cord that's longer than the longest rappel or maybe a six millimeter rope pull. Um, so if you're trying to shed some weight, that's one way where you can use either of those for the pull. And I think the key is to just not commit both of your ropes or um, both of your longest ropes, in my example, to the same rappel because you get them stuck um, kind of early on in that pull, you're not going to easily be able to um, get enough back in order to be able to finish your, your canyon. So you need to be careful with that. Um, so another thing that we always carry with us is webbing. So tell us a little bit about what you use that for and why we need to carry some with us. Yeah, I think that uh, webbing, the primary use is building anchors. Um, a lot of times we're going in places that have installed bolts, but they could also be off of natural anchors. Um, but as part of the ethic, we're you know using webbing that kind of blends in with the color, with the uh, with the terrain. But because this is gear that we're leaving behind, it is less durable than maybe if we had an infinite amount of money. And so it does degrade over time, especially with like UV water. 
uh, it's going to start getting to a point where you're not going to trust it and you're going to want to be able to replace it. Yeah. And so we usually carry, I don't know about every person in the group, but um, those that want to pack a little heavier, about 20 to 50 feet of webbing, because you're going to use um, probably a good 10 or so feet each time you replace um, a particular anchor, depending on where it is and how long it is. Um, and then the other thing to keep in mind is having webbing is nice for very, very short repels. Sometimes you're just going down, you know, five to 10 feet on something very small. Well, five might be a down climb, but maybe 10 to 12 feet. And so having something you can actually repel on webbing. Um, so people don't always know that. So instead of dragging um, your rope out, you can just toss some webbing there. And the other thing that I've had before is if you happen to be short, um, then you can, you know, pass the knot, or if you need to add a little bit on your pull side, having that maybe 30 to 50 feet of webbing to be able to extend your pull or extend to repel in a, in not the ideal situation, but if you just need to, um, is very helpful. So you always have something in your pack that you can rely on to get down a little bit further. Also hand lines and things like that are great. All right. And then obviously there's a knife, um, that you're going to want, uh, to be able to cut out the old webbing, um, put in, put in some new webbing and then cut it to size. Um, the only thing I, I mean, maybe you have two cents on knives. The only thing that I, I have a very small one with some teeth, um, that, you know, I can saw through, uh, webbing cause I don't have to use it that often. Um, the only thing that I've noticed is I need to put a little rubber band or something around it to make sure that it doesn't accidentally open. I had a bigger knife before open up and was like, uh, uh, as I was down climbing, stabbing me in the leg. So you do have to be careful about knives. And I don't know if you have any advice on, on knives to carry. Yeah, I carry the, uh, the Petzl one that like clips onto a carabiner and just have it available. Yep. Yep. And also if there's other, you know, emergencies where you, you know, you're in water and you got to cut yourself out cause you're, you're being pinned and you're only, you know, five or 10 feet above something and you can take the fall before you can take not breathing. So there might be some emergencies. You do need it handy on your, on your harness, wherever you can. Uh, first aid kit. So obviously things like bandages, tape is universal. Uh, I think the things that I've seen people use the most out of their own personal ACE kit, um, are moleskin, uh, cause they get blisters on, on longer approaches and then tweezers. Tell us a little bit about why you might want a tweezers in your, in your pack. Yeah. I mean, just over the last couple of years, I mean, I must've like stepped into like a hundred different cactuses and it's somebody's responsibility to get them out of me. <laughs> um, so yeah, tweezers are a great way or actually I've switched over to the lancets, um, which are those, like those tiny metal pieces, um, that you use to draw blood. Uh, and what I do is I just do a small slit that follows the splinter then I take the point, put it in right at the center, and it just pops the splinter right out. Yeah, nice. And the other thing I'll put in a plug for on the first aid kit is Bleed Stop. So there is, that's an actual brand of, you can buy either a, a powder or um, some impregnated gauze. So it, it will actually clot blood. So if there is a more serious fall or cut or accident and there's a significant amount of blood, um, having that bleed spot, it, it's not necessarily cheap. Um, but you're, you know, you may be talking 10 to $20 for one of those packages or the impregnated gauze, but it's, uh, it'll be when you need it, you're really going to appreciate having it. Uh, so let's talk about the garments. We have the GPS locators in general, there's spot and others. Um, what have you used the Garmin for and, or in most cases, hopefully not used it for. Yeah. I mean, the most times I use it is to talk to you. Yes. Yeah. But like, I think the situation when I bought the Garmin was, I was in a canyon and I was going to probably be five hours late um, and you were waiting for me mm -hmm. and I was 100% fine. Like I would not have any problems finishing in the dark, but the problem was that I couldn't communicate that. 
right? So now I've got someone that's waiting for me that doesn't know that I'm fine. And so that's kind of what I was like, oh, like all I really need to do is say, hey, I'm doing great. I'm just running late. That's all I needed. And that's part of why I I purchased one. Yeah. And that was the closest that I've been to calling 911 for somebody uh, when you weren't back when expected. And, um, and I've done the same. If you're in the back country, just telling everybody that you're okay with a simple message. Um, and then obviously there's an SOS button on it as well. So um, SAR, SAR will come and find you when the time comes if you need that. Uh, the last couple of things I want to talk about is in a wet canyon, right? So your dry suit or a wet suit, when you're going into the water, the canyons don't get a lot of sun, so it's awfully cold. Uh, and so when you need a, a wet suit or a dry suit, you're really going to need some to protect yourself and protect against hypothermia. Um, but talk about some of the advantages and disadvantages of a wet suit versus a dry suit. And yeah, you know, it, it kind of uh, is how and how they are designed to work. So like the wetsuit actually allows water to come in and forms a thin layer of water between you and the neoprene. And that water heats up and then that's what keeps you warm. The dry suit is completely different where I think it's like it, it's supposed to not allow any water in. And so that air is a better insulator. It will keep you warmer. However, like it's much more prone to catastrophic failure like any small puncture and the water gets in there that water is circulating in a different way than the neoprene does because it, it won't retain the heat as well um so is it warmer yes but it, it, it does require a little bit more um you have to be more careful with it yeah and, and of course under the dry suit you can wear as many clothes as you want in order to stay warm right so you're just protecting you're going to be completely dry in theory um, but as you said, I have known folks that, you know, luckily only got a hole in their dry suit in their leg. So they walked around with cold water in their leg the rest of the, the canyon day. Um, so it's not ideal. The wetsuit, on the other hand, um, after about four or five hours in some really cold uh, water, it's not going to, it's tough for your body to continually um, rewarm it, especially if you're in and out of water a lot with heaps or something like that. So it's not perfect, um, but it definitely, if you can get out of the water, um, it gives you a chance to warm back up in that in that wetsuit. Um, so the last uh, two things that we want to talk about is communication. Sometimes in these wetter canyons, when there's a waterfall, it's almost uh, impossible to hear anybody from top to bottom, especially not voice commands that you would normally do. Um, but also just on some you know 300 foot rappels over a cliff, it's really tough to hear. So um, there's a there's a couple things that we do. One is a whistle. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I think there's a couple of different commands that you can, um, there are standard commands, but it's kind of nice to just go through them over the, before you go down. And these whistles allow you to communicate intention, on belay, off belay, lower me, save me, what, by just doing short series of blasts, kind of like Morse code. Um, does it work? I, I haven't gotten it to work very well. Yeah, and I've, I've had that problem too, is, is the one time that we used whistles on a huge, um, water repel, we couldn't hear anything. We couldn't even hear the whistle, um, even though um, the folks were blowing it loud enough to hurt their own ears. It wasn't helpful. So that also brings us to the other, which is radio. So we've used um, various walkie-talkie radios before, and uh, to be able to do the simple commands back and forth, um, kind of had mixed bag with the radios because sometimes the topography or the type of radios um, works great. Uh, sometimes not not so much. And I don't know if you have any specific advice on on radios or ones that you've used, Vin. Yeah, I, well, I think the last trip that we had, we just couldn't get them to work either. And some of that was just we didn't set it up right. But it turns out that radios also don't work very well when you have thousands of gallons of water smashing into your face. 
Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is to make sure that, um, you know, they are water waterproof or at least water resistant because you're going to have them banged around and probably uh, near the water on the on the bottom side anyway, uh, maybe on your hip as you go down. Great. Anything else uh, you can think of today for advanced or safety equipment, Vin, that we need to impart upon our listeners and the one gentleman in Slovakia? (laughs) No, I think that's all I got today. Okay, great. Appreciate everyone. And we will talk to you next time. Thanks.